Hey folks, before we dive into our month-long Pride coverage, Trace and I just wanted to do a quick note. Obviously, we look at the show as entertainment, and we try to have a lot of fun with it. And fun we have. Yeah, but I think to suggest that it's also not informed by politics would be irresponsible. And given the current state of affairs in the world, I think we also need to take just this moment to acknowledge the fact that we are publicly pronouncing that, yes, of course, Horror Queers publicly stands with Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. So one of the things that we did want to do was acknowledge that everybody should be taking a stand in this in the way that they feel most comfortable with. And that's particularly given that, you know, we do have a lot of white listeners and this is an opportunity for us to show our support. We're celebrating Pride this month and Pride has a intricate connection to the Black community. So part of this is that we are all in this together and it's an opportunity to raise up marginalized voices and demand change. And I saw something today that was like, you know, I I will never understand what you're going through but i stand with you and that's kind of the mentality i'm taking right now exactly so there's a lot of different ways that people can get involved and i think it depends on what you're most comfortable with but we just wanted to encourage people that you should make sure that your voice is heard if you have a platform please use it if you've got money that you can spare seek out opportunities to support different organizations potentially something like actblue.com where you can donate to a bunch of different bail funds in different counties and then of course there's also the opportunity for white folks to educate themselves so if you don't feel like you have the full context or you don't completely understand the background of uh, what's happening we would encourage you to check out something like the blacklivesmatter.card.co and that's card with two r's it's a really great resource that's put together with all different kinds of ways to get involved with activism educate yourself and just become generally more informed so we're going to continue to release the episodes as planned because we do think that people might need the diversion they might need the entertainment and we've got a lot of important things that we want to talk about with regard to queer lives and all of that but this is the time to stand up and make sure that you are supporting black lives matters and all of the people that have supported you over the years i couldn't have put any better myself joe and with that let's get on with the show this is the bloody disgusting podcast network to horror queers we're talking meat bar we're talking drag queen asphyxiation and we're talking flavored enemas scooby-doo-doo and i'm joe <laughs> and i'm trace and we're talking lots and lots of cocaine yeah but like bad cocaine the kind that if you keep doing it will eventually kill you cut up okay i, I don't think you understand how cocaine works so that <laughs> cocaine was cut with something bad the cocaine they were talking about at the beginning of the movie was just bad cocaine <laughs> 
Right. And what movie are we talking about? I'm sorry, we're talking... Everyone, we are making our second foray into double feature territory in the span of a month, so thank you all for sticking with us through that. Uh, We are talking about 2004's gay slasher film Hellbent and 2018's gay slasher film Killer Unicorn. Both very similar films, both very different films. Yes, yeah. uh, One is a trailblazer and one is a kickstarter. And I have a lot to say about both. (laughs) I'm sure we will. But before we get to that, we do have a very, very, very special guest on today's episode. Um, Some may call him the master of queer horror. I don't know. Um, I've never said that, but I'm sure some people have. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, he is the director of the horror short The Quiet Room, as well as the director of Shudder's upcoming queer horror documentary. He's also the former co-host of one of our favorite queer horror podcasts, Attack of the Queer Wolf. Please welcome Sam Weinman. Hello, friends. Uh, that was shady as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are talking about high shade films. Y- you'll forgive me. I-, I actually just watched Killer Unicorn today, and so I was really on a roll of just insulting everybody. I'm into it. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I don't think I could be friends with any of the people in Killer Unicorn because they are so mean to each other. Mm, I... Mm, it, it's kind of like drag culture for me though you know like it's so much of it is meant is built around reading and so it's just like i mean i get it but like it's just not who i am right mm. <laughs> <laughs> seems we'll like see. oh let me polish my nails <laughs> i think that uh yeah i really admired madame mortimer i definitely want to be their friend <laughs> oh harvey firestein 2.0 yes right yeah with the look of raven mm. yes <laughs> So how are you doing, Sam? How's life? Are you upset that we made you watch these two movies? <laughs> no, I, I. Well, first off, I. It's a pleasure seeing them together mm-hmm. because that. Uh, you're. I. I didn't realize how similar they were. You know, a queer horror comes along once in a while. You know, and then when it does, it's a big moment to gobble it all up. And now seeing them together and thinking about the context of the way they do and don't relate. That was exciting. So thank you for giving me the excuse to do it. I have learned a lot about cocaine and a lot about enemas. As somebody <laughs> oh who uh, I needed that information. <laughs> well, because sure. you live in Los Angeles, right? I do. Yeah, because so, I, 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 for some reason, going into this, I thought Killer Unicorn was also LA based, but it was New York based. So I'm wondering also if we'll have the obviously of how like the evolution of the queer slasher film, but also just the differences like in how New York and LA are portrayed in each film. Uh, quick correction. This is Brooklyn. This is not New York. But Brooklyn's in New York, isn't it? Yes, but people who are in New York will make a very significant distinction. Brooklyn is oh. not part of New York to them. <laughs> is it lower class? We should take this point to acknowledge that this is the kickoff to our Pride Month celebration, which is part of the reason why we're double featuring a couple of very, very queer slasher films, because they are milestones and they're worth celebrating. They are. And, you know, since no one can go out and have a parade, we're, that's why we're giving you this double feature to kick off the month, to give you as much queerness as possible, since you can't get any outside exactly so dress up and prepare your flavored enema and or flavored lube i do not like flavored lube i do not like flavored condoms i opened a condom once and it was banana flavored and i didn't realize until like i opened it like the waft of like the runts banana scent like hit me and i was like they just always reek of novelty to me there's not enough sugar in them (laughs) you know like they're all like calorie free if they had made them right (laughs) we could enjoy them it's right. so gross. It's so gross. I do not, I don't understand it. But you know what? I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum. If y'all are into that shit, by all means, enjoy it. 
<laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, we'll we'll just kind of blaze right in, and we'll start with Hellbent since it came out first. Um, I do have a bit of production because I feel like there's a lot of things to say about this movie, and I feel like complaints people might have about it might be explained by the production history. Absolutely. Director Paul Etheridge, uh, who had no credit to his name when this film came around, uh, he was approached in like, sometime in the year 2000 by some uh, executive producers, and they basically said, oh, we want to do a a gay horror film uh will you direct it because they had like read a portion of a romantic comedy script that he had written and i guess they thought that translated well into horror because as we all know every gay romantic comedy is a horror story <laughs> if it's straight sure so yeah and uh, it was going to be on a micro budget which if you've seen this film you are very aware of that fact um, with a very minimal advertising budget. It's a bit avant-garde. Yeah, it, it's almost like a cinema verite, especially when you see the original footage that he shot in the first year, right? It's like man on the street filming with a low-budget camera. Actually, good thing you mentioned that, though, because listeners, if you did listen to our episode on Auto or Up With Dead People last year, you'll actually probably see a lot of the same, maybe not narrative drive, because this film actually has a narrative, <laughs> but a lot of the same like production value and aesthetic in the, in these two films. Yes. So basically, like he was just like, "Cool, I'm going to develop this script." He wanted he didn't want to like have queer stereotypes where like, "Oh, it was all about them being gay," which I know we've discussed before, like can be a good or a bad thing. I think in this case, it was probably correct, but he instead went the kind of quote unquote generic slasher route where he watched a bunch of old slashers and found the stereotypes, you know, the final girl, the slut, the nerdy one, and he made mm -hmm. those his characters. So Yeah. I, I it totally works fine. I mean I I think it has the effect of making Hellbent maybe seem less impressive from a slasher standpoint, but then when you add in the queer factor, I mean it kind of substitutes that out. Yeah, he's not reinventing the wheel. He wanted characters that people felt like they could relate to by just having regular human beings, but he also used the tropes. And going back to what you said, they did second unit filming on Hellbent um, in October of 2001. And so basically, yeah, they went to the West Hollywood Carnival, Halloween Carnival, and just fucking shot like six hours of footage. I have never had the pleasure of attending this carnival. Um, it looks like Mardi Gras. The most relatable part of this movie was when they parked on the other side of a park where they could have been murdered. And they were like, hey, I know a shortcut. This is like the dilemma for anybody queer trying to get to the street fair. It's like you have to park in like Nevada and then walk because everything <laughs> is closed off. And so when I saw that, I was like, yeah, I get it. That's mm -hmm. why they're doing this. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. I'd rather be murdered than try to find a parking spot that's closer. Yeah. Are you an it's, annual attendee of the carnival, Sam? Um, usually, although this year I didn't because a lot of times we have like all of the uh, the marathon horror that happens. So right. I'll start off there for a little bit, but then I go over to whatever like horrorathon is available. But I broke my foot this year, so I uh, I was I was not as mobile, so I, I missed it. But normally, because you can see anything there. Like one year, I saw Kevin Federline have his like big premiere of his new single. <laughs> and uh, and then he got booed off of stage. Oh, I mean, yes. that's history, you know, and you'll only find that <laughs> at the Halloween fair. I thought you were going another direction. Like, I saw Kevin Featherline with his big, and I totally thought you were just about to go, like, his big dick out. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Wow, yeah, that's information I didn't have before. <laughs> I mean, I feel like Brittany probably likes them big. Oh, I don't think she's a size queen. Let's not let's not besmirch the name of Brittany like that. 
the thing about the street or the the carnival in general though is that it's so straight so it's like because because it draws such a big crowd you really are seeing more straight people in one place than anywhere else so it is it, it is very queer in being acceptable but it is a big pile of people well you'll have to educate us on this i've only been to la once and it was literally for a 24 hour period but west hollywood i mean that, that is like the gay area of los angeles right well there's two so well, there are more than two but there are two main ones there's west hollywood being kind of like the more uh like i don't know it's what you'd expect right stereotypically gay yeah like the the muscle queens and that kind of like assimilation more assimilation culture uh where downtown LA being the alternative that's where you'll go and see a drag show and see the queens from Dragula that's where you've got your beards and body hair and you know all kinds of body shapes and and that's just we we kind of have these two separate places uh within this one city but West Hollywood being this big draw at Halloween I mean it is it is like millions of people in one place it's crazy I mean they they close down essentially all of West Hollywood and it's all on foot and the hmm. and it's Ugh. just you can't move it's but it's also like this really cool thing where it's just a gigantic it's the coolest halloween party anybody's ever been to and it's all outside so i think that's like a pretty special thing and something i look forward to every year that's hmm. i mean i i i applaud you i i used to go to mardi gras like once a year for like six years and at a point i was like i don't think i can do it this year i don't think i have the energy <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it can be exhausting to try to navigate things like it's interesting because toronto has like we shut down our gay district for pride but it's for like a very brief period because nobody wants to deal with the traffic nightmares and we're talking a street so i can't even imagine what you're talking about like the scope of what you're talking about sam it's pretty silly when you think about it i mean nobody wants to wait in line for hours to get into a place and all that but it's where everybody is and it's just exciting and nobody's phones work because there's no service you know because there's too many people in one spot and for a second it feels like you're just in this bubble of queer and halloween and that's kind of nice nice but yeah so so they do this stock footage for six like again six hours of footage was shot less than two minutes of this stock footage appears in the film but um, that's just the way of filmmaking. They started casting uh, between this time. Etheridge did want a racially diverse cast. I think one of the criticisms that falls on Hellbent, especially now, is that it's a very white cast. Yes. No people of color, I don't think, at all in this movie. I don't even think we get one. There is one, the woman who runs the diner that they all meet at. (laughs) Good for her. But yeah, like she's she's got like two lines. It's basically like, don't touch anything when you walk through the kitchen. And that's about it. But I think this is where we're going to get into the differences between the two films, because Killer Unicorn obviously does have a very racially diverse cast. But apparently the reason because he couldn't get anyone to come in, like any people of because Eddie was uh, the lead character was originally meant to be Latino. And he could not get any people of color to come in and audition for this film. Just so crazy, right? Like, we're talking about a film that's barely 16 years old. Like, I know for a lot of people, that's, a, you know, oh my god, that's so long ago. But it's striking to think that films that were made in the 2000s were having difficulty attracting racially diverse casts because of queer content. It's interesting, though, because that's what I remember about 2000s gay films. It was just that they were so white and so mm-hmm. hyper masculine and yes. it, it, there it, it didn't surprise me when i showed up to the theater that this is that that's what i saw i thought at the time i just thought i was seeing something that was a reflection of what was happening in film yeah and i mean you're not wrong like if you look at the 
the queer content that was coming out around this time. Like, I mean, I shudder to think about going back to like Dante's Cove and thinking about what that looks like. It's also quite white and quite beefy jack guys. But don't you think though that, okay, and I am a white cisgender gay man, but I, I also wonder if, I mean, the reason they couldn't get people of color to come in is because at the time, and I mean, honestly, still even now, like people of color, it's like, oh, you're not white. Okay, that's one like mark against you in your future career. And, oh, you're also going to get pigeonholed playing a gay character in a gay horror movie. So it's like, I, I imagine there were a lot of agents advising their clients of color to not do this film. Or even just future leading men. Like, do you want to be in this gay horror film or do you want to hold out and maybe you can get some low budget romantic comedy i mean this isn't even a problem that's that old though i mean like even recent years so if we're looking at casting right i mean we've been even thinking about outside of the world of horror you've got eating out in 2004 you've got these films where anytime you have you could have some queer cast characters but the leads or anybody who's going to get naked and fuck they're usually played by by straight straight dudes actors right and and because the risk is when you out who you are Mm -hmm. that's that's the end how you're seen right but but a straight guy he kind of has the privilege to hopefully i guess or the hope was to 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 be able to dodge that in the future or maybe to be commended in the way that people are like oh that's such a brave role yeah (laughs) oh i can't believe you took that on gosh what was your struggle like really show your 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 strengths here um (laughs) But talking about something more recently, you know, like when I cast The Quiet Room, my lead is a person of color and I definitely was looking for that in my lead. And and I still in casting in 2017 still faced uh, similar challenges. You know, it, I understand. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I don't understand from personal experience because I benefit from white privilege, but <laughs> I've had it explained to me in the process and along the way by the folks that I work with exactly why that is. You know, and I think we're still needing to see that change. Mm-hmm. that's like when people say oh like the, the the gays are fine now it's like oh, okay <laughs> thanks and, <laughs> we're and good all, yeah which ones too yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> the ones who have steady incomes and don't need like medicare i mean we still can't donate blood yet you know so that's well actually no maybe, i think we can't oh, they now, relaxed but it. once it once once corona's done then we're back to not being able to do it jesus christ yeah okay hey. I, I can't talk about that let's move on okay i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically, but like the, the casting process seemed kind of like an ordeal anyway. Like at one point, uh, apparently thirty non-white actors were scheduled to audition, and none of them showed up. So yeah, they just got left with an all-white cast. The lead, Dylan Fergus, was cast just two days before principal photography began. Um, they actually cast people that didn't need a lot of rehearsal because there just wasn't time to rehearse for this film. Uh, they filmed, uh, obviously the B-roll was October of 2001. Then they filmed the movie itself in October of 2002. And this was a protracted shooting schedule, right? Like on again, off again kind of deal? Yeah, and I think they actually shot the B-roll before they even had a script. Like they had a concept, but they didn't have like a full idea yeah. of what, what the film was going to be. They just knew it was going to be, oh, a gay slasher that's set with the WeHo Hollywood Carnival as a backdrop. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the entire cast is made up of heterosexual men, which I don't have any insight on why that was the case, other than, I mean, what Sam just said about, yeah, if you are gay and you are in a gay film, then oops, like that's essentially your outing. Mm-hmm. They apparently, uh, some of them did have some issues with the same sex, like, things that were d- done in the film, just like kissing and, you know, sex play. I, I'm, I'm assuming this is mostly coming from... um. Uh, it could be four out of the five. Um, which we'll get into that when we get into like, the, the plot of the film. Uh, as we've seen on RuPaul's Drag Race several times, um, sometimes men cannot walk in heels. That befell actor <laughs> Matt Phillips. 
<laughs> who plays Toby. <laughs> you mean even if you play really empowering music behind it, he, <laughs> he's still... <laughs> yep. I mean, he's I just, trying so hard. I like to think about all the takes. I actually feel like no. I guess Joey has the least screen time. I was like, I feel like 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 he gets to the short end of the stick with his like character development. But I mean, there aren't really developments in this film, so it's fine. Oh, be kind. No, it's, I mean, I, again, it, it's very reminiscent of an eighty slasher. You know, you you have your stock types, and that's it. There isn't much beyond it on the surface. But we'll get into beneath the surface once we're into the discussion. Right. One thing I did appreciate, though, um, so the guy that plays the Devil Daddy also did uh, some of the music for the film. Etheridge and his music supervisor, John Norris, uh, they were playing the music, and um, Etheridge read an article about the queer core scene in L.A., which is gay punk music, which we also discussed in our auto episode, or if we really want to go gener- gener- general punk with our The Ranger episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, this article in Queer Core mentioned uh, the band Nickname and the Normals, so Etheridge contacted him to see if he would contacted name nickname <laughs> to see if he'd be interested in writing music for the film, and he he did. And then he was like, "Oh, oh, oh!" Also, name was a former Abercrombie and Fitch model. I was gonna and say, so- yeah, he saw that body and then said, <laughs> "Hey." So Etheridge was like, "Oh, do you also want to like be the killer in the film?" And he was like, "Sure." And that was that. So yeah, uh, basically all that goes down. This movie gets released. Well, it, it screens at a ton of LGBTQ festivals. Um, in two thousand four, it gets an official release September sixteenth of two thousand five. Uh, we got a runtime of eighty four minutes. I don't have the budget, but it's micro, so it's very very small. Sam, actually, you being in the industry, do you is there like a bracket of like like what micro would be defined as? No, I mean, really, I feel like anything micro budget or usually when I hear it, it's it's under a million. But I would mm-hmm. say that in the case of this film, it's it's definitely under half a million. Yeah. I, I, well, honestly, because I mean, you, you, you see Blumhouse making like half a million dollars work nowadays and it's like whatever. I, I, I'm wondering if it's even lower than that. But unfortunately, I don't have any uh, research for that. It does open in about 10 theaters that weekend, and it opens in the number 54 spot with $45,000. Goes on to gross $183,000 uh, domestically. Uh, reception is a bit mixed. We're looking at a 46% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.18 out of 10, and a letterbox score of 5.8 out of 10. I do think that this film has earned the reputation. Oh, it's like the first gay slasher. But I, I feel like, yeah, it, it, even today, the reception for the film is still mixed. I think it might be just from people who don't understand the mm-hmm. genesis of the film <laughs> yeah well it's there's an interesting point to be made about the way that this film was marketed right like they kind of had two different options they could go the more conventional david dakota route and say okay we're going to market this to teen girls as a conventional horror film that just happens to have a lot of queer content in it but i think what they ultimately decided to do is go the film festival route which kind of guarantees that you're not going to make a ton of money and i feel like a lot of people end up discovering this film on like the equivalent of vod back in 2005 like i have the tla dvd from back in the day because i I went into you know my queer porno shop and was like i'm just looking for a movie that's not porn (laughs) so you weren't looking for the hole uh, I have watched the whole and I fucking love it. Live. Trace, okay. if you haven't seen the whole, you should definitely check it out because it's basically the ring, only it's a porno. Seven days and you're gay. Yeah. Oh my god. I love that and I will seek that out. But I, I was actually saying I was going back to Sam with Eating Out because I totally sought out all those fucking Eating Out movies because I was like, oh, there's penis in these. And, yeah. you know, it's like. And Brent Corrigan. I didn't have. And... 
I mean, I had access to porn going like growing up, but it was like you know AOL dial-up internet, and so like it was like a picture that you had to wait to like load on your screen. You know, I could just watch a bunch of videos. Yeah, I think it's important to address that how different we accessed images of men at that time. So like you mentioned that uh, that you know Devil Daddy was in an Abercrombie. He was an Abercrombie Fitch model mm-hmm. that was porn. So if you got the Abercrombie uh, yes. Fitch catalog, which PS sold out everywhere every quarter it was released. That that was something because it was like softcore images yep. of like or homoerotic images of half naked men like playing with footballs, but that was fucking porn, right? Oh, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I, so, ma- I masturbated to many of those things, <laughs> and so and so while eating out was something that we could get at the video store, it was something we could get at the video store that had dick, mm-hmm. and that was a big deal. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, mean, that that's why that line from Scream that Tatum says, like, if you pause it just right, you can see his penis. I was like, oh, Tatum, you are <laughs> speaking for all the gay men, where you're just like. Yep. Like half the time you're spending looking at these terrible semi softcore gay movies, just looking for dick, looking for abs, yes. looking for like a hint of butt. It's oh my god, uh, Pride Pride Month and thirstiness. It's the struggle is real. Which I I will I'm gonna say commend this movie for not. There is a sex scene, but it's not its not like something you would have seen in Eating Out or, I mean, dare I even say another gay movie at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but it's also more explicitly queer than some of those David Dakota films, which granted are very queer, but it's more like homoeroticism than it is outright queerness. Yes. 100%. Yeah. And that's actually one of the reasons why I really like Hellbent is because it could have gone really trashy and it could have just caved like there was a reason that i was really ashamed to watch a lot of queer cinema when i was in the process of coming out and just kind of fresh on the scene because a lot of the films basically just say okay we're either going to go super straight lace and it's going to be period drama and one one of these people is going to turn to drugs and die of aids or yeah. it's eating out and it's basically so trashy there's no plot and it's basically just you know people fucking and i commend hellbound for trying to come in somewhere in the middle of that like this is a legitimate horror film that just happens to be all queer men and they want to do a little bit of drugs and they want to fuck so i remember seeing this film in theaters because i had to drive all the way to la to do it and i was in orange county at the time and that felt like a really big deal <laughs> and <laughs> traffic I was so, got got like my friends loaded up somebody else's car because i didn't have one and then you know i'm sitting in an audience with maybe four other people and we're watching this thing and i remember just that the hype around it was so much that i think it was i think one having wanting having wanted to have seen myself on the screen so very badly for so long it was a really challenging thing to go into that film with an open mind because the production value is different than that of a straight film. And we're coming yeah. out like, you know, barely a year after Seed of Chucky. And mm-hmm. and that was such an overt or to me felt so overtly queer in other ways that to go and transition into this, I remember feeling disappointed. Now, that's not my feeling today. But no. at the time, I wanted something else. And I didn't get that when I was in the audience. And I, so I, I sympathize with the collective disappointment at the time. But I would also say I didn't have examples of queer community. I didn't really have right. queer friends. Like yeah. I, I really did just have the people around me. And when I saw this movie, which is so heavily weighted in queer friendship, yes. um, and, and those themes are so strong. And honestly, I think so well written uh, as far as the friend connections go. It was just something that I couldn't relate to. And I think a lot of people at the time, unless you were in a in a place where this kind of character existed, it was hard to connect. 
I agree with that. I mean, I was, uh, I would have seen this when I was like 16 years old as, you know, a little gay boy in the suburbs of Houston, Texas. And yeah. I, I, I did share this a similar disappointment because, yeah, I, but I think back then I was just wanting to see porny stuff. And yeah. I think the low budget and the, 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 the uh, dare I say, poor look of the film, the home video approach, I'll say. It definitely turned me off, and I didn't really learn to appreciate what the film was doing, or even its place in history, until until Joe and I revisited it two years ago. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people go into this with unfair expectations about how it should look, what it should be addressing, and yeah, I think the context is really significant and important, and I, I really feel like we don't give Paul Etheridge enough credit for yes. making a much better film than probably he was even expected to. Like, I imagine they commissioned him to make this so that they could cash in on some kind of craze and make a quick buck. And he produces a legitimately watchable film with compelling friendship-driven characters. Paul didn't have to make this movie. Like, I think the expectation was something different. And he, he really... I think he did a lot with very little. Yeah. And the moment that I realized that, at least upon a rewatch later, was when Chaz comes out of the car and they do like the clown car joke where first mm-hmm. a woman comes out and then surprise, so does a guy. And it's bisexual visibility that didn't exist at that time, even in, in my opinion, even in films that we were seeing like eating out. It was always a gay guy or a straight guy. And then mm-hmm. you would try and fuck the straight guy. And then, then you know, it was like this whole weird like could you turn him thing but it was never like hey here's some legitimate bisexual visibility here's a character who can enjoy both and we can enjoy him oh well i mean sam didn't you know bisexuality doesn't exist it's just a stepping stone to being gay oh right right and that's i think we don't give paul like that's something that i haven't seen paul get credit for which is like that's kick ass and in 2004 uh, fuck yeah yeah i actually forgot that it carries on throughout the film because i remember the first time i saw the film I was deeply annoyed at that moment because I was like, so they're not even all gay. There's like, and of course, the horn dog is the guy who's a bisexual because, of course, you could have it both ways. The greediness, quote unquote. Yeah, it's like that stereotype. Yeah. Uh, But then on subsequent rewatches, I'm like, actually, you know what? Like, Chaz is a legitimate bisexual. He clearly is attracted to both sexes and he makes that evident in multiple times throughout the film. And I love the fact that he doesn't apologize for it and no one cares. And he's such a great friend. Yeah, he is. Like, he's in that bathroom scene uh, with uh, Joey mm-hmm. and he's he's talking to him. And earlier, even just some of the most realistic dialogue, I feel like, comes from uh, comes from Chaz. Like, at the diner, when he reaches across the table and he's like, kiss me, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's making Toby really uncomfortable. But it's like, I feel like that's me and my friends. I relate to that. That diner scene... It plays, honestly, I was like, holy shit, this reminds me of Midnight Kiss. Well, no, I was going to say that too. In a lot of these films, what I actually appreciate in in queer, horror or otherwise queer films, is like seeing the characters talk. And just having a conversation where I'm like, oh, like, I've had this conversation before, like, because mm-hmm. it centers around, like, some aspect of my queerness, but, like, I don't see this, you know, in movies. And so just having, like, seeing these characters have a normal conversation about queer things, that that I appreciate that so much more now than I did back when I was 16. And, yeah. uh, and, and even if it's little things, like, in Midnight Kiss, which we discussed on Patreon, 
it was like the like the, the one-off line about prep, you know? And it's yeah. like, oh, it's a one-off line, but oh my god, like that's there for me. It's it's me and I get it and I like it. There's a lived-inness in these characters that I completely did not give credit for the first time I watched it. And on subsequent viewings, I feel like the the thing that jumps out at me the most is that this dialogue feels really authentic. The nature of their friendship, like I always remember Eddie being such a like a boring milquetoast kind of protagonist because i'm just like why aren't you hooking up with jake why are you leaving your friend so that you can go back and look for joey like joey is fine just leave him alone (laughs) and you know i think it plays really differently if you think about oh haven't you ever been at the bar and one of your friends goes missing and you suddenly realize oh i should probably check on them because i want to make sure that they haven't been roofied that they haven't gone off with the wrong person that they're not throwing up in the bathroom like and that is friendship, right? Where you're willing to put aside the D so that you can go check on the F. Yes. And also even the competitive nature of we're going out and they're all expressing their anxieties about it before. You know, it's <laughs> like if this person's going to succeed or, or, you know, what's going to happen throughout the night. And I thought it was a really, uh, I thought that felt authentic. I think that if this dialogue had come from the mouths of queer actors, we would have recognized it sooner. But because it's not knowing the struggles of the film and then just seeing a white straight male cast performing queer dialogue is a challenge because suddenly it doesn't feel queer. Yeah. They they can't quite wrap their lips around it in a way. Right. I know. Wish they would. (laughs) (laughs) Which one though, Sam, which one? (laughs) Come on. It's obviously Chaz. He reminds me of, um, Oh my God. It's uh, like the hostile guy, Freddie Rodriguez. I knew you were going to say it. Interesting. Yeah. I because okay. that's I see it. He, he does give those vibes because they have the same kind of cocky confidence. Sorry, I yes. did it again. Jay Hernandez. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But they, also, he does look like both of them. Yeah. So what you're saying is you got a boner for both of them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. No, I act. I'm actually more of a um, of a Joey guy. I, I I go for the demure ones. Oh wow. Okay. I mean, one of the things that I find very amusing about this film is how it both leans into the archetypes of their costumes and also subverts them. Like, I love the fact that we have some light BDSM, we have some drag, we have the cop, and we have the cowboy. Because they're such gay stereotypes, right? But the village people. Yeah, more or less. (laughs) But these men are also not... Uh, um, but like none of them fit into it right like they're all experimenting with this costume like eddie is not a cop he's just a wannabe uh you know Chaz, i think comes the closest because he does have that swagger but like joey can't even put on his gear correctly and toby is immediately complaining about his heels i i, I think no i think I, and that maybe that's why i'm going for joey because i relate to joey the most because i remember like i i've never really understood the purpose of gear i was like oh it has to have a purpose right and i remember <laughs> I just got drunk at a club one night and I asked someone's like, what do you do with that? And they're like, oh, it's just a look. But also when you're fucking someone, you can hold on to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I don't have like the confidence to wear that in public. I can't do that. Which is so interesting that you're wearing it right now. <laughs> yes. But I guess absolutely. without anybody being able to see you, it makes sense. Yeah. So it's just for me. I masturbate to myself in gear. <laughs> Podcasting well leather. Yes. Yep. <laughs> 
So just because we're kind of already into it, I think what we should do is just jettison the plot summary. So for folks who haven't seen the film or you haven't seen it recently, basically we've got these friends, Eddie, uh, Chaz, Toby, and Joey. So four friends. Eddie catches the eye of Jake, who is our quintessential bad boy, because he gets a tattoo and rides a motorcycle. And they end up hanging out at this carnival where they accidentally attract the attention of a serial killer who is going after queer men he is a topless hunk who wears a devil's mask and he more or less gets through the boys one by one until at the end when eddie and jake are trying to make out back at the apartment he attacks and eddie must shoot him in order to save his burgeoning lover i would like to comment on the last part of that because you said that they're back at the apartment trying to make out, but actually, and in true 2004 fashion, or 2005 once this is released, but uh, he doesn't want to make out, right? Like, he won't kiss. Um, Jake won't kiss. And I fucking hate that. And felt like, when I, I remember seeing it at the time and remembering how often I encountered that. I mean, for me, it was pretty frequent. Like, someone who, like, didn't want to kiss because that makes them more gay? yes. Like, not kissing when hooking up. I don't know if that's experiences that you guys have had, but yeah. And and I think what it does is it points to the ratio. One thing that I think happens so well in Hellbent is it explores the relationship between gay men and masculinity. And the fear of being feminized. It, it is. And I, yeah. I had a similar experience. I went down on a guy. And after we were done, I was like, okay, cool, my turn. And he goes, oh, I don't do that. Like, delivered just like that. And I was like, oh, <laughs> would have been nice to know in advance but sure yeah this this film is interesting in that regard i i really would love to know about the genesis of it in terms of were all of these men written to be sort of i mean for lack of a better term they're all kind of muscle queens except for joey who is a little bit scrawnier and it's clearly conveyed that he is more sexually inexperienced so they're all kind of filling this one kind of trademark body type. And yeah, the, the film really seems to have issues with masculinity. Like it's literally Toby's entire story arc. I mean, where... I would argue it's masculinity and body image in general, because all of these guys are either cut or slim. Like we don't get any, I mean, again, not that I like it's necessary, but like, you know, we don't get any representations in the bear community or like other body types. I almost made an argument to say, well, it is set in the right part of town then, but well, <laughs> yes, right. that doesn't excuse it. But just tea, you know? No, th there is a very much a stereotype about, like, the L specifically the West Hollywood gay scene. It's like, oh, if you don't look like, like Chaz, basically, like, you're not going to fit in. Well, I was going to make a joke earlier, and it kind of seemed in poor taste, but I'll, I'll not make the joke, but say the comment now, which <laughs> is that this film heavily contributed to my body dysmorphia, because, it, as I mentioned, it was around the time that I was coming out. And I looked at it and just thought, oh, fuck, do I need to be jacked and cut and, you know, wearing the right clothes with the best haircut and all of this kind of stuff? Like, if these guys are having difficulty getting laid, what what chance do I have? That's very relatable. As somebody who has, for example, a lot of body hair. I'm a, I'm a hairy fucking dude. And I remember seeing this. <laughs> like, I, I, I investigated, like, Nair and Veet and all these different oh options gosh. after this. Because, you know, you can't be in 2004 and have body hair. It's just no. not a thing. And then if all of our representations are this, I knew beyond a doubt that I didn't fit into gay culture mm -hmm. from the images that I was seeing. That's... 
at least though, and I guess maybe we'll get more into this when we talk about Killer Unicorn, but since 2004, like with just like, again, so much social media and like people able to connect more and like obviously with queer horror, like just queerness in general, like really breaking into mainstream entertainment, at least we're getting more of those, those representations, but it's still like, it's still Hollywood. So it's still very much like, be cut, please. Yeah. So for me, my favorite moment of the film is when Toby is being pursued by the killer and thinks that he is being rejected mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. Uh, for being in drag. And I think it points to a culture that a lot of people don't know about the early to mid-2000s, which is like pre-drag race. It was like, and, and still now, and I'm not saying everything is solved and it's all changed, right? <laughs> but pre-drag race, to be in drag was to forfeit a lot. Like you are turning over your masculinity and becoming unfuckable and i don't agree with that but i know it was a general feeling and it's reflected in the line when he says i'm a sex symbol every day of the year i think a good girl deserves a night off don't you as if to imply that to be in drag uh is to would, not be sexy it's to not be sexy and well, paul shared a story with where he said that he one night when he what, the character th- throws his driver's license on the ground and says this is to prove what he really looks like and paul shared that that's his story Oh, really? you know, that, that that happened to him and that's that was where that scene came from that that's interesting because i even i i've seen this movie like three or four times watching the scene when he does get rejected at the bar i was very much like he's very clearly a very attractive man even through because i mean he's in drag but like it's not like he's still very noticeably an attractive man yes and i was the hair and makeup. I, I found it unbelievable that someone would be like uh no thank you after that but I mean, I I wasn't of that age at that time, so I had no, I have no point of reference other than yeah, like you, like in a post RuPaul world. Which even going back to those early seasons of RuPaul, it's like oh, you can see like when it start, when people started believing in it more because the production value went up. <laughs> you mean the Vaseline wasn't coated on the lens? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel the same way as both of you because uh, Trace, I I was having the same issues where I was like, he's clearly a very attractive man, and it also kind of seemed like he was doing this to give himself that night off, not not in the way that you're saying, Sam, that he wanted to be unfuckable, but that he just didn't want to be that sex symbol that we see plastered on the big billboard yeah. that he poses in front of. But the film can't help but make that conflation, right? Which is that yes. if you're dressing in drag, it's not just that you're no longer a male sex symbol, but also that you have given away elements of your masculinity that basically renders you invisible as well like toby spends the majority of this film by himself or being ditched by his friends because he like he has no romantic interest he is not looking after anybody else he's just getting fucking drunk in this movie Mm -hmm. because he's disappeared from public view and if we're looking at the timeline of queer horror this comes out after seed of chucky which wasn't very successful and what is seed of chucky explore but Mm -hmm. in, in your face gender indeterminate individual well that's a movie too though where like i mean that movie was hated upon when it came out and to an extent like i think a lot of the horror community still does not like it but now when you go i i I say that as someone who actually has come around in the film a lot um but i think now though once people got what mancini was trying to do with like the gender identity people are like oh you know maybe the humor doesn't all work for me but like i i I appreciate the effort i think that Homo- the root to homophobia is misogyny, and these films highlight that, and that makes people uncomfortable. And when we look at the way the gender is explored in Hellbent, 
people hate women <laughs> or, or seeing those. And so if you are already struggling to be noticed and seen and desired to have those traits give you away or, or to have those traits that would make you considered less than. I mean, I remember uh, seeing in Grinder profiles at the time, or not Grinder, because what was it at that time? Craigslist. I mean, it's yes. like oh four, <laughs> um, but it's just like if I wanted to to be with a woman, I'd I'd be with one. You know, I, I want a man. That kind of language permeated culture, and well, I think that Hellbent captures it perfectly. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the femphobia is obviously still prevalent today, and it's really sickening. I actually then Sam for you a question. So, how do you read his death? Because the killer in the movie has no motive. You know, we don't know why he's killing these men. We don't know if it's Which because they're gay or something else. But he doesn't kill Toby until Toby starts presenting himself as more masculine and removing the feminine articles of clothing. Trace and I actually had a back and forth about whether or not Toby would have been safe had he remained in drag. We we both think that he would have actually been able to walk away from this because the killer was clearly only targeting very mask presenting men. Yeah, he gives himself away. Mm -hmm, yeah. Well, and, and I think that what would support your reading of that is in the very last moment before he gets murdered, the killer walks up and spreads his thumb across his, uh, Toby's lips and smudges mm -hmm. it. He ru essentially, like, he ruins his makeup. Yeah. And, yeah. and you get to, to see, see, okay, that's all it is, is this makeup that's keeping him from being this yeah. person underneath. The artifice. Yes. Mm. Which is like, like hello. I can't believe that that kind of commentary, that kind of depth is in what should be this, you know, trashy little gay slasher film from 2004. Sorry, 2005. I mean, it's both. Festivals 04, <laughs> official release 05. Thank you for saving me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's just, like it, it, it's genuinely shocking. And again, like I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but these are the kinds of things that I think it's really easy to miss on a first watch if you're not paying attention to the film. Like if you're just looking to get your rocks off with like attractive men getting murdered, you're going to miss all of these subtleties in the nuance. Yes. I, I, I do think though that the production value turns people off. I mean, I, 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 I was surprised. I watched this on Amazon yesterday and it, I mean, it looks visually not great. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, I think yeah. it's a hurdle that that, that 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 people can have trouble getting over sometimes. And then that, that that prevents them from looking into the deeper aspects of the film when they can't even get past the look of the image. Yeah. It's just so disappointing because that that's not something that Paul had control over. It's not like he could have yeah. gone back to the studio and said, hey, if you really want to make a good film, I'm going to need a little bit more money. It was like this is my big breakthrough. I've never written anything. I've never directed anything. So I'm going to say, yes, thank you for the money. And I'm going to go off and make this movie. And it's, I don't know. I would love to think that we're in a different position, but it's still the fact that we managed to get this level of queer horror off the ground in 2004 is really impressive. And the sad fact is, is that when people look at it, they overlook the, the historical relevancy of it because it doesn't look as good, unfortunately. I think it's a challenge we still face with queer horror just because we're not being given budgets that are uh, proportionally mm -hmm. in line with what else is happening, even in, in a micro budget. Like we're talking Kickstarters or getting things off the ground. Or even if you look at something like Midnight Kiss, which is essentially an episode of TV, it's not actually right. a film, right? Um, yeah. We still haven't managed to bridge that gap between 
making an actual movie with the with the budget that our peers are getting yeah like i know when trace and i got access to midnight kiss early we were so excited and part of that excitement was tempered by the fact that it was like but of course it's fucking into the dark like into the dark has done a lot of great things for a lot of up-and-coming filmmakers i don't i don't want to diminish that but all i could think of was like wouldn't it have been so amazing to have been able to see this movie for all of its flaws and all of its strengths on the big fucking screen. Yeah. And we're just not there. I, but, and this, I don't see this movie getting remade or rebooted ever, but I think like, I, I would love to see that. Like what does Hellbent look like in 2020 or 2021, you know? Yes. Yeah. Like give Paul the budget to make something, let him make it the way that he wants. And hopefully he'd be able to get the people he wants. But like, yeah, he, he, when I interviewed him last year for my Pride interview series, he actually said he would be totally welcome to... I think he said, like, I'd prefer somebody else to kind of remake it in their own contemporary vision. He did also say he had an idea for, like, he had a spec script for a sequel that will obviously never get made. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, never said ever. There's a queer horror doc coming out that might... You know, <laughs> <laughs> change the way that people look at horror, but we'll see. Reignite the flames. <laughs> I, I would love to see Paul um, doing something I, again. I just Other- want him to come back. Like, I don't want him working on Eli Roth's show. No no shade to Eli Roth, but also shade to Eli Roth. I'm like, if you're keeping Paul from making important work that could be benefiting the queer community, I'm just like, Ugh, how can we free Paul to come back and make more I mean, movies? I, I, don't think, I don't think it's Eli Roth's fault that he's, like, keeping Etheridge from, like, going no, out and no, making no. other films. No, I just mean, like, if the opportunities are not there for queer filmmakers right. to make movies and they therefore have to go and work on other people's shitty television shows to make an income, then, yeah, that's... Yeah. Something that's cool about watching Hellbent, knowing what Paul does now, which is a lot of production design. Like, mm-hmm. he made... It, be it, whatever it is, you know, for Eli Roth, he's made some of that stuff look incredible. and yeah. And you can see those early those early moments of Paul's in this film with, even with no budget, you're looking at that scene in the beginning with the car and the balloons and the balloons are so colorful or the way that things mm-hmm. are lit in that. Like I fucking love the bathroom kill because yes. it's oh, just, yeah. it's lit with, uh, it's just so fun and, and colorful. And you see this, this palette appear again and it's like, ah oh, man, that's, that is something that's thought out and you see what he's doing now. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're a visual guy. Yeah. And I wish I just wish I could live in a world where I could have seen the set pieces that Paul would have created yeah. if he had the budget. I, I actually I know we've been getting really heavy with like the topics of queerness and themes, but I actually just on a general horror basis, I actually do like the present the presentation of the kills in this movie. Now, I do think it blows its load early with Joey's death because that also is my favorite, and it's also the most heartbreaking in the movie. You know, oh, like hundred percent. I feel so bad for him when he dies. And also even Chaz, because I'm kind of like, oh man, you're just trying to roll. Like, it's totally fine. But no, the only good thing is that he maybe doesn't feel as much pain when he dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think uh, even the production design in the final sequence, which is maybe the most, it's the most straightforward uh, when we get to Eddie and Jay cooking up back at the apartment I love the fact that each of the different roommate rooms has a different lighting scheme to help you understand 
which mm. room is Toby's and which room is Chaz's and which room is Eddie's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a little details. Also in the nature of the kills, they are something that something that always gets me is when something is so related to queer violence, like violence that we experience at the hands of homophobes. Mm-hmm. This is, I mean, to me, even though this killer is hunting these men who are queer, it doesn't feel homophobic. It just feels like they're guys in a slasher film to me. Well, I, I, I that that's intentional though. You know, I think that that's why we don't. Because the the killer apparently did have lines of dialogue in the script, and then they just, uh, Etheridge decided not to do that, so they removed all of his lines of dialogue oh, and not give him a motive. Because basically, the, whatever motive you think the killer has, you're drawing from your own personal experience in life. Yeah. I think it, it, I mean, we've talked repeatedly about not giving killers backstories because it makes them less compelling. Explaining away their motivation is not interesting. So I think that's the correct decision. But I also like the opportunity where I could, I could maybe see someone watching this and saying, okay, this is a homophobic killer. And that's why we need protection for the queer community. Or you could look at it as, yeah, this is a guy who hasn't been getting laid and he's cutting up people who made fun of him. And that's his motivation. Like, you you can project what you want onto this film. And I think that makes it more interesting. Yeah, like, he's killing mask culture because maybe he's femme, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, there's multiple readings for it. I'm actually, I, I'd be more interested in knowing, like, whatever your reading of it is, like, which category of, sexu- sec- of sexuality do you fall into? Because I actually would, I would bet, and maybe it's a generalization, that a lot of straight people, if they watch this, would view it as being homophobic. I will say, um, and maybe at this point after this, we should move on to Kill a Unicorn to make sure it's getting its due. But I really appreciate that there's a line in here. There, you know, content warning. There, a lot of people do say the F word, the fag word. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a mention of tranny, which has not aged well. Nope. But I really appreciated the fact that one of the final lines of dialogue in this movie is when Eddie tells his sister don't let them turn this into a fag bashing, okay? It was oh, funny. yeah. Yes. Like, it feels of the time, but also very, very relevant to a lot of people's concerns, right? Like, this is the element where you don't want to be defined solely by your sexuality, but at the same time, sometimes it does end up defining you. Well, that's what happens, right, though? Like, if, if, if someone who's queer gets beat up, it's obviously because they're queer. That That's, even if that's not the case, which it obviously is not always the case... That's where people's minds go immediately. And in the end, to support all of this reading about masculinity and and where it goes, uh, the two do kiss, Jake and Eddie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they finally do kiss, but it's not until he's, like, saved his life and mm-hmm. overcome this thing that has come after, essentially, any any image of toxic masculinity or just masculinity in general. Now, that's that's my reading, of course. But it's cool that they actually do and that we don't just leave it there. And I also think that, to me, as a, as a viewer... I was looking at these breadcrumbs thinking that Eddie or sorry, that Jake was the bad guy that because he was the bad boy boyfriend that didn't wear a helmet and you know, like, cause they, and they even draw attention to that. And because he won't kiss, like, I'm like, ah, he's everything I'm not supposed to like. And actually what it is, is we're supposed to watch him have an arc, have a moment of growth and really accept who he is. And I love that. It's okay to want to kiss the guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And just on a totally gonzo level, like, the eye lick. Oh, I love it. The killer having his eyeball in his mouth at the end. Like, I fucking live for that shit. I mean, it, yeah, a lot of the focus is on Eddie's eye. And I imagine that this was like, 
you know, maybe had a higher budget and Eddie was like gonna die. I imagine there'd be some eye hole play going on at some point beyond <laughs> what we get. But yeah, it's great. And honestly, it's a great way to close out the movie. You know, like just just that that smile with the eye in his mouth. It's yeah. just so deliciously creepy, and it, it it's a good way to like in the. It's a good note to end the movie on. I mean, yes. I wish did, we would have gotten that sequel, but sure. Did y'all yeah. clock the reference in Scary Movie Four? No. So, like, Cindy has a scene in Saw, like, it's like a Saw spinoff, or spoof, I mean, Uh, and so she kind of has to pull her, she goes, she's supposed to cut her eye out, and they almost match, like, a reverse of that iconic moment where the sickle comes at Eddie's eye, Mm -hmm. and it's that with a scalpel from a profile, and then she pulls her eye out, and it's a glass eye. Now, I mean, it, it, maybe it's a coincidence, but that movie was 2006, and this was in the culture. That had just yes. happened, and they were imitating everything from 2005. Oh, I believe it. I mean, you know, the scary movie movies have their ups and downs, but I don't, like, those people know their horror movies. Like, they were clearly watching movies of the time, so I, I would totally buy that that could be, potentially be a, hell, a hellbent reference. And I remember being in the audience, seeing it, and going, wait, does that mean <laughs> we're part of this? <laughs> and Simon Rex was clearly invested in the queer culture since he was making jerk-off videos at the time. You know what? So. I think I think our goal, it, you know, we had, like, another gay movie back then in the mid-2000s. It should be, like, another queer horror movie. That, that, that should be, like, the goal. Horror. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so are you suggesting that our second feature, Killer Unicorn, is not that film trace? Man. Okay, yeah. Well, let's just move on to this. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, so we're looking at Killer Unicorn now, uh, which was released on June 14th, 2019 by Indican Pictures, a mercifully brief runtime of 74 minutes, and also, <laughs> I don't know the budget for this one, but I would wager that the budget for this was probably similar to the budget for Hellbent, but you can just get away with more with less money now than you could in 2004. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're clearly looking at a very low-budget affair. This is a labor of love, but... You know, just the stark advances in what cameras can do, like like cheapo cameras in terms of better quality, that six-year gap has been very helpful. No, Yeah. Five, I made yeah. a joke that was like, I was like, oh, like, if fucking Soderbergh can do Unsane on an iPhone, like, this is probably the same thing. <laughs> right. So, yeah, this opens in five theaters, which I would wager were probably all in New York and L.A., uh, and number 47 with $15,000, and it goes on to make $33,000 uh across uh, domestically uh there are no reviews for this film on rotten tomatoes oh wow that's a first for us (laughs) Hmm. just couldn't be bothered i mean (laughs) i i will confess i watched this movie last year and i had a blast with it and i rewatched it like today and i was like was i just like really drunk i don't know like i enjoyed the first 30 minutes of this movie and then it was like just downhill from there but we'll we'll get into it maybe in a bit um we do have a letterbox score of 5.8 out of 10 and Directed by Drew Bolton, who, uh, this is a first-time film for him, and he has done nothing since. Written by Jose D. Alvarez, uh, who has not written anything else either, but he does co-star in this film as the ro- uh, one of the romantic leads, Puppy mm-hmm. Pup. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, uh, Joe, why, why don't you, because uh, I think people might be less familiar with this film, uh, which, by the way, everyone, it is streaming on Amazon Prime and a couple other places, but um, I did pay five bucks to rent this, so... Y'all are welcome. <laughs> and we, we just gave Killer Unicorn back half of its budget by renting the two of us. <laughs> I but, guess. Yeah, what's this about, Joe? Okay, so quick content warning off the top. There is sexual assault in this film. 
so this is the story of Danny, who is Alejandro La Rosa, and he is a bartender. We pick up with him after, basically it's the day after a drag queen named JJ, aka Jess Jizz. I love it, I love it, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> she has been murdered the night before at some kind of drag queen club, because it seems like most everyone at the club is in drag, which is an mm-hmm. interesting Point. But she has been murdered uh, shortly after trying to hook up with a very hot-bodied thwunk in a unicorn mask. And this is played by Dennis Boudaheim. And we never see his face. So much like we never learn anything about the killer in Hellbent, here we never learn what the unicorn killer looks like or what his motivation... Well, we, we know his motivation, but it doesn't yeah. get explained. Just a headless torso, just like your grinder screen. Really? Yeah, like a hot pink booty shorts, a killer unicorn mask, and that abdomen. I mean, when we were trying to figure out what to pair with Hellbent, I mean, we were going back between this and Midnight Kiss, and we ultimately went with this because the general concept just kind of matched more, even Mm -hmm. though the tone of Midnight Kiss probably matches Hellbent more. Yes. But yeah, it is. watching these back-to-back is a very bizarre, (laughs) jarring experience. Yeah, it's charting a course through queer horror history, more or less. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, folks, if you haven't watched this, just be aware that it is a very silly, very comedic film. Like... Uh, Go ahead. Why don't you finish this plot summary and we'll get to that. <laughs> okay, yes. So uh, so Danny is working the memorial for JJ and it, the, the first portion of the film is basically populated by a series of real life drag performers who are playing characters or maybe caricatures of their real life you know alter egos so we get a bunch of drag performances at this memorial we get a couple more murders and eventually it's revealed that so danny has to tell puppy pup who is his new burgeoning love interest that he and a bunch of the queens inadvertently murdered a man who raped him at the previous year's enema party and of course the one-year anniversary has come up and the killer unicorn is now making their way through this list and killing off everyone who's responsible. So so Danny was roofied at the party, and then he was raped outside, and his friends came out and kicked this individual to what they thought was death. But it turns out, of course, that this individual actually lived, and he is now back a year later to finish them off. So uh, it all culminates at this year's enema party, where a bunch of people are murdered in... <laughs> gruesome slash comedic fashion that is all exceedingly gay and at the end of the film danny manages to make it outside he faces down against the unicorn he is almost murdered but puppy pup saves him and then gets bashed in the head repeatedly with a pipe but that allows danny to stab the unicorn and then danny gets distracted by an idiot named coke (laughs) um low grade jenny slate more or less yes (laughs) so danny is then uh while he is distracted he is stabbed by the unicorn who is not dead at which point a magnanimous character named madame mortimer shows up and axes the unicorn to death makes a quip about jamie lee curtis in the film ends uh and also requests a bump of cocaine Yes, so <laughs> copious drug use, uh, copious talk about enemas, flavored enemas, which I 
am interested to know if it, those are a real thing. And a lot of character slash caricatures, because this film doesn't spend a lot of time developing these people into real people it's more content to just let them loose so the the film that this movie reminded me of the most was actually also a film we've covered on our articles joe um it was ticked off trannies with knives yes the minute that you said that that was a similar tone and feel it was like yeah 100 percent confirmation <laughs> and uh, it's like also a sexual assault uh, abuse blah 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 I would argue that because TikTok Trannies takes a grindhouse aesthetic, it works better for that film than it does for this one. Because the moment that this film loses me, honestly, is with the introduction of the rape scene. Not because, not just because it's rape, but because it doesn't juggle these tones very well. Like it's, it, mm-hmm. you're right. It is a very silly movie, and I laughed at a lot of these jokes. But then, like honestly, anything to do with Danny, it just it felt like it was an entirely different film for me. Yeah, that rape scene honestly comes out of nowhere, and it's a serious sexual assault. Like, but the problem is, is that Killer Unicorn is unfortunately one of many, many textual properties that does not want to do the work of addressing what that means. Like, unfortunately, there is a certain amount of sexual assault within the queer community, so it's like the film is actually doing an interesting job of reflecting trends and realities within the community so there's copious drug use there's flighty characters who would rather get laid than look out for their friends but they also form a certain amount of community but then you've got this rape scene that's supposed to anchor the entire film but the filmmakers don't want to do any work with that like people don't take it seriously sometimes even danny himself and it's it's just too much reality in a film that is removed from a lot of that reality. Well, the thing is, we're following characters who, and I get, I think it's it. You nailed it when you said it doesn't juggle the tones mm-hmm. that in the way that it could. I had a really hard time. Just there were things that I loved about it. Um, I, I'd say particularly the way that the uh, the the scenes were shot that were indoors and had the killer with that blue lighting, and I'm like, fuck, this looks cool. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually really enjoyed the killer unicorn look as a killer, much yeah. like I enjoyed the killer from Hellbent, because neither of them reappropriated uh, S&M in a scary way, which often happens in queer films. It's like, ooh, look at this, like, reinterpreted yeah. thing from our community, uh, but hate it, you know? <laughs> um, but instead, this is like, ah, oh, he's a unicorn mask. All right. <laughs> you know? Um, but when we got to the rape of it, it was... Uh, we've already established that all of these characters don't care about one another. And that's supposed to be like what makes them likable is, is that they're like flipping and, mm-hmm. and, and just don't give a fuck. And so the front, there was almost like, there was just such an underwhelming reaction to the rape yeah. and to the, the death of the, or the, the suspected death of the killer that it just may be not able to root for anybody. Well, Okay. You are right. And I think, but that's also kind of a thing in queer communities, right? Where it's like, oh, like we're, I think a lot of times we are branded as selfish and very self-serving, um, despite the fact that, yes, I'm publicly, like, we all give this, like, oh, like we support each other. We're one community. But I've also found that, like, trying to interact with other queer people sometimes, it's not that easy. And that's not always the case. And in this movie, I mean, I think it, it starts off well. Like, the opening death of Jess's, I think, is really fun. The How they find her body. Like, it's presented as over the top and silly. So the fact that they're not caring about each other, it doesn't bother me. Because it's clearly, at this point in the film, trying to be funny. 
then we get the introductions of all the characters. Oh, also, I really did like the opening credits, the texting stuff. I thought that was really fun. The opening credits are fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically social media posts from every member of the cast. And it's like, it, it actually, it, I think, offers you the best presentation of what the tone for the film is going to be like because some of the characters are just like oh i hated that dumb bitch her coke was the worst and other people are like oh we've lost the valued member of our community so it's it's really running the um, gamut of different types of reactions the the, the lady havoc who was like y'all i saw just just right before she died and she told me that she i, I love she loved my performances and she wanted to see me put on a really good show and she loved me so much like that that that, that works that's yes. humor that's funny but then the next day, the next scene we get the danny stuff and we have one of the like go oh oh it's it's puppy pup is like oh like what what's what's his deal and when the guy goes oh well he got raped by some dude last year and it was really intense and now he doesn't go out yeah and that's okay like you can't you can't just drop a sexual assault into a conversation and not have like unless you're not going to address anything with any level of seriousness you can't just randomly drop that in but that's the problem with having characters like I'm not saying that there aren't queer people who exist like this. I've definitely encountered these people. Um, but if, if everything is one note, then mm-hmm. when, then there's no opportunity to react with the nuance that something like that needs, even in a, in a comedic tone. Well, but and the yeah. film tries to, though, right? Like later in the film, like once we really get into like Danny being stalked and like reliving his past, like it does try to take it much more seriously as it should. But it, by that point for me, it's like it's too little too late. I feel like you're maybe being a little generous with how serious it's taking because, I mean, okay, so there's a moment where... Go ahead. ahead. No, 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 go ahead. (laughs) So there's a moment where Danny and Puppy Pup, they go back to his place after the memorial and they're briefly stuck by the unicorn, but they manage to make it back. They hook up. And the next morning, Danny gets text messages on Grindr from the killer unicorn and he's advised to look in the closet. And there he finds the decapitated head of a drag queen who was meant to perform at the memorial. But of course, everyone thought that she was just flaky as hell and she didn't show up. But I did love the, are you guys doing drugs? Give me drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. There's a lot of good comedy that does actually work in here, but like Danny's reaction is so understated and when he tells puppy pup about the fact that they murdered someone after he was <laughs> raped the following year puppy pup doesn't try to console him like like there needs to be at least a couple of genuine characters to root this narrative so that you can have these more ridiculous characters and you can say okay well those people are crazy or funny or just like they're out of touch but at least we've got these characters to root for because when danny and puppy pup are then getting stalked at the end of the film and everybody's in danger you don't care like there's no stakes in this drama i feel like the character that would have worked the best had they done a little bit more work is actually the madame mortimer character because you get the sense that this is like a drag mother like she's looking out for danny and it almost seems like she's going to be the one who's going to go off and solve this case and instead dead she ends up at the killer's apartment and gets sexually assaulted herself so what okay what happens to her like he sticks a like a rod in her urethra that's what i took it to be it's unclear okay so there's actually two sexual assaults because it's at this point revealed that madame mortimer went back after everyone thought that the killer was dead the year before and seemingly anally raped 
the killer or the rapist with yeah. a oh a hanger. hanger. There we go. Yeah. And it it seems like she went back after everyone thought that they had killed the rapist, and she seemingly raped the rapist with a coat hanger. I wasn't. I I I had I had, I was questionable on this too. I I thought maybe she mangled his testicles. Like that's I don't know why I went there instead of raping. Because I guess <laughs> in my mind I'm like, how do you rape someone with a oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, he Straighten stuck the out. wire hanger up his urethra. Oh, that would make more sense. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. The, the movie doesn't make it very clear. No, and the fact that there isn't that kind of clarity, and and even that, you know, Madame Mortimer doesn't become this avenging angel, like she's just as silly as all of the other characters, and you, you wonder about her motivation, like why would she go to this person? Because it seems... Initially, it seems like, oh, she's just posing, like she's luring the killer out of hiding by pretending that she wants to hook up with him. But then when she arrives at the apartment, it actually seems like she wanted to just hook up with this person. (laughs) She did. Yeah. I think that one of my issues, too, and I mean, Danny is presented as, um, I don't want to say masculine, but definitely like, that's how he comes across. Because when you get the flashbacks of pre-raped Danny... He's very effeminate. He's a club kid, yeah. Yes, and I, I think the idea was to be like, oh, he's just like, you know, internalized a lot of this trauma, so he's just not as, like, expressive. But I viewed it more as like, oh, after he was raped, he became more butch. And I didn't really like that. You know, I've been trying to think about how to jump in on it because I my feelings about this film are... I'm, I love seeing queer people make art. And something about this film that I could feel in every scene was that it was a bunch of friends getting together and making mm-hmm. something they were excited about. You can, yes. and, and it's so often in queer representation, we don't get to see actual queer actors doing the work. But in this yeah. movie, we see queer actors in a queer space doing the shit that we do. And it, that part reads as very authentic. But in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, we have the like equal and opposite to Hellbent, where Hellbent, we have this dialogue about community and friendship and we do have comedy, but it's, it's, it's kind of muddled when it goes through the, through the mouths of straight actors. On the flip side, we have a film here where we have queer actors and you can feel that connection, but at the same time, I I don't personally connect with the material and, and the dialogue is not something I was a fan of. And I was very turned off by the violence. And because to me, it was more than just those assaults. It was like every death was an assault. We have an enema that is like acid, mm. right? Or battery acid. We have yeah. uh, it, the, the, the pipe bashing at the end when they kill the killer. My God, mm-hmm. guys. I mean, and I'm, and I'm somebody who like, I can tolerate a lot. I fucking love horror. But mm-hmm. watching them beat his head in with a pipe, yeah. I just, I, it hurt. Because so much of what I had seen throughout the film was was violence against queer people that was sexually related. And then we have this ending, this killer and, 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 and the violent act itself just felt, I, and I hate to be that guy that's like, ah, this is too much, but I just don't think no. it was handled the way that earned that kind of response. I don't, I, I don't think you're incorrect though. I mean, like, and I grant you, I don't know what, what the writer Alvarez has experienced in his life. Like for all I know, maybe he's experienced sexual assault and this is his way of like, you know, coming to terms with it. I'm not, I don't know, you know, what, but regardless, just going off of what I'm seeing in this film, I mean, granted, from a, just a general filmmaking standpoint, it, it's shot with a camera that looks okay, but it's, it's not filmed particularly well, and the editing, like, I mean, I, I was telling Joe earlier, like, the funeral scene where we get 
a performance from a drag queen and then like you know it's playing over shots of like the characters we don't care about doing other things and i was like why are we seeing because i'm the okay we're gonna get like a clip of this drag queen singing at the funeral no no no. it's a full like three and a half minute number and we have to sit through it all and it's like that's where your friendship stuff comes in though it's like i am happy that we now live in a world where yeah you can get a bunch of queer friends and they can make a movie and like that's a queer horror film and get it out there but then it's also like there's a line where you have to have someone looking over you and say hey maybe edit this down a bit and we're talking about a movie that's already 74 minutes with credits i do love that length though uh, oh it's great god bless a short movie yeah we watched on beavers a couple months ago and that flew by whereas this dragged a bit for me well i i think to kind of pull the two pieces together that you've both raised it's I wondered when I was watching this, so this was a first time watch for me, and I felt like Trace, you had prepared me to on what to expect a little bit, but you know, mm-hmm. obviously experiencing a film is very different from just having a heads up. But I couldn't figure out who the audience for this was. Because I felt like it's so queer Them. that it can't possibly be for straight audiences. Like I I'm super interested to hear from our straight listeners about what they thought of this film because it is messy <laughs> you're right no it's very good i i love the the use of poppers in the sex scene because you know that straight people do not know what they were doing <laughs> but even <laughs> yeah like there's a giant vat of lube at this sex party that everybody goes to there's just constantly talk about enemas um uh, fisting douching, fisting like there's a lot of i don't want to say hallmarks or tenants but there's a lot of very <laughs> queer elements in this film which i could imagine might be very uh off-putting to straight people or or maybe more vanilla people who are kind of like oh yeah what is this but at the same time the film isn't it's not negotiating its queer elements like it's so glib and facile and i feel like there are moments where the comedy really lands and it's funny and gross and silly and dumb and it works in the film's favor but not as a 74-minute film. It feels like this could have been some funny sketches about drag queens negotiating a horror film like if Search Party was yeah. a queer horror film. In that, I, like, I loved Bible Girl at the beginning being our Drew Barrymore. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, this, you know, bigger drag queen is going to be the first to go. Um, and and it was it very clearly painted the type of world like I bought into what the world was because that was my access point. You know, it's yeah, like, sure. okay, these are the these are the priorities. Okay, cool. The ending, I think. So I watched the trailer before I saw the movie, and I don't normally do that, but I yeah. wanted to just have an idea what I was getting into. And the trailer shows <laughs> the Metamorphomer uh, line about Jamie Lee Curtis, and then asking for oh. a bump of coke. And in the trailer, it totally didn't land for me because it hadn't been earned by the movie. But mm-hmm. in the context of the film and the tone that's established and the way that people talk, I fucking lived at that line. That yeah. line hit and I was like, this is my favorite moment of the film. It didn't work for me in the trailer, but in the context of the film, it was everything. And I was yes. suddenly cheering on this person because that was the kind of reaction. It was almost like killing this old, old world way of ending things where we see danny kind of coming out and he is a little bit of a sad boy which uh, for <laughs> obvious reasons but right. is and then we have this powerful powerful drag queen just like yeah whatever this is what life is well because D- danny is dead at the end of this film right yeah, yeah like both of our romantic leads are dead in the end of this movie <laughs> which again yeah. is like yeah. that's a 
That's a pretty brazen choice. I, I actually so because this is uh, this is the antithesis of Hellbent though, right? Like whereas Hellbent kind of I don't want to say played down the queerness, but it's compared to this queer light. Whereas this is like going into a lot of the as you said, like the extremes of queer, specifically gay and drag culture. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's stereotypes. Oh, cocaine is the gay drug. Uh, oh, gays love to fist. Gays love poppers. It, but it also felt a bit extreme and. But that's the point, right? So, like, I I, mm-hmm. I, feel like the film is trying to do this, but then I'm also like, but I feel like it's also, like, reinforcing these stereotypes and not in a way that I don't, I don't know how to feel about. I don't, I don't know what I think of this movie because I don't think this movie knows what it's trying to do. <laughs> it's very much a uh, throw everything at the sink or at the fridge, spaghetti in the fridge. What's... Whatever. Kitchen sink approach. There we go. Yeah, it's everything but the kitchen sink approach. And I think the the problem is, is that sometimes when it works, it really works, mm-hmm. right? Like it really captures a certain zeitgeist. And, you know, yeah, like some of these jokes are great. Some of these lines are great. Some of these characters are even really memorable. And I like the idea that this is a real drag persona. Like if I went to Brooklyn and I went to a club, I might see Madame Mortimer. That would be really fun. Yeah. I think the problem is is that it's all of these unique elements are butting up head. All of these unique elements are really butting up against traditional notions of narrative and characterization. And the film is trying to play it both ways, right? Like it's trying to be rude and loud and queer. And in those ways, it's mostly succeeding. But it's also trying to be a relatively straightforward slasher film with ridiculous elements. And in that way, it's not succeeding. Yeah. I do feel like the audience for this movie are the people in it. And I don't mean that in a shady (laughs) way, like the 20 people in it. I mean more like it's so specific. It reminded me of when I first saw Cruising and I was like, oh, here's a world I don't know. Like, the, cruising is not a representation of all queer culture. Cruising is such a specific representation of queer leather culture in the year that it came out, right? Yeah. And this feels like a specifically, it's it's specifically represented, re- representative of the folks who are making it. And in that way, I feel like maybe the movie did achieve what it intended to do. Just because I wasn't the audience for it doesn't mean that it didn't right. achieve it. it. It very much felt like this is what they wanted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's kind of funny now that I'm thinking back where I, I you know, mocked you, Trace, and I said, oh, this is not a New York film. This is a Brooklyn film. And now I'm wondering, like, oh, maybe this is for people who have been in the Brooklyn drag scene. <laughs> like, they will know be. these people. They will understand these references. Like, the rest of us obviously can understand a lot of this film, but it doesn't connect with us because we don't have the connection to these people in but the it, film it does have a grasp of humor though i mean honestly one of the biggest laughs for me was when the the evacuation of the club which lasted i think 20 minutes for every <laughs> for all 10 people to get out of that club like you, <laughs> you see people like running around and there's literally a part where you see a guy who's very flamboyantly running like swinging his arms he runs towards a wall f- stops and turns around and just runs the other way. So it's like, you can just tell, like, like they're just running around. The director was like, oh, just run around. Like, I, I can't have you leave because I have to, it has to look like the people are still in the club. Like, that was funny. And maybe it was unintentionally funny. I don't think it was. But, like, stuff like that is really fun. I just think juxtapose up against all of this <sighs> sexual assault. I mean, <sighs> I, I was about to say, I don't want to say sexual assault can't be funny. But it, it really can't be funny, right? I don't know. Um, yeah, answer that question. 
<laughs> I wish that there was more satire in the approach to what it was saying. If you're going to do it, make a point. That's all I feel about it. Yeah. Yeah, it it feels like it wants to present a certain amount of levity around the sexual assault that it doesn't earn because it doesn't it's not willing to interrogate it or do that work and then the rest of the film doesn't want to do any of that. So it just feels completely out of place. But then for me like like in the climax when it's Danny and Puppy Pup like getting chased and like I think Puppy Pup's like about to get beaten and Danny's like no could have played as oh it, we're just overacting over the top but what it came across as to me was a serious approach with bad acting yeah like don't kill my future boyfriend we've got a promising relationship ahead of us that we've known each other for, the for a day and fucked yeah can we do a little bit more comparing and contrasting of the two i don't want to like beat this film down yeah. because i think we've addressed the fact that maybe it doesn't work for us i had fun with like 40 percent of this film <laughs> <laughs> but we're looking with a very, like, colorful, literally, cast. It's way more brazen about its approaches to queerness. It's in poor taste, sometimes in good yes. ways, sometimes in bad, in yes. ways that Hellbent is just not. So, on a level, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we can have something that can come out like this and can get distribution somehow <laughs> for somebody. And I do feel like everything about Hellbent that makes it gay horror, this movie is queer horror. Yes. You know, it really does step out of the things that uh, that we're told we need to be. And this movie does whatever the fuck it wants. And yeah. I think that's in its favor. And I think it it also, not to not to try to be too grandiose about this, but it, it sort of proves how far we've come, not just from like what we can allow to showcase like different elements of queer lifestyles, but also the way that the medium itself has changed, right? Like you can't make a movie like Killer Unicorn and have it be more than distributed on like a VHS tapes to your friends back in 2004. Like this is content that people will not produce. Whereas right. in 2019, you can have a small budget, you can make a relatively decent looking film and then you can release it on VOD and mm -hmm. probably make some money off of it. Uh, yeah, they're charging $5 on Amazon for it. Absolutely. There you go. Like, it, it makes me wonder what Hellbent would be if it hadn't been made last year. Right. I'm sorry. I feel like I just keep like <laughs> slamming this conversation. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's why we have editing so we can cut out the mo these moments. It's tricky for me because, I mean, Killer Unicorn is not the only film of its kind that I've seen. You know, I've seen other films like that. And again, going back to TikTok Trannies, which has its own fair share of problems, but I just yeah. still enjoy. I'm loath to say I want, I mean, I want to see it, but I don't want to see it because I kind of like the little hole that Hellbent has made for itself in, in 2004. Making it today, I feel like I'd be afraid that it would turn into something like Killer Unicorn, and I don't want that to happen. Or that it's almost too old-fashioned, right? Like, Killer Unicorn feels like the younger, hipper, more drug-abusing sibling to Hellbent, right? Like, Hellbent was the good child, and then Killer Unicorn is like, oh, well... You, you invested all your time and energy raising Hellbent, and now I'm going to go out and do drugs and sleep with everybody and say fuck a lot. <laughs> well, I actually think the casual drug abuse, because, I mean, is are there really any, is, is there cocaine or anything in Hellbent? That, or did I miss that? He, uh, there's a brief moment where Chaz appears to do coke off a woman's breasts. Okay. This movie, Killer Unicorn, the first shot, I think, is someone doing coke on a table. Mm -hmm. Again, I get it. I, I just don't, like, love this, like, 
I don't know, like, oh, look at all of us. We're all cokeheads. <laughs> or if we're not doing coke, we're doing weed. Because in the first 30 minutes of this movie, you're, someone's either doing coke or weed at every point in time. Well, you know, for me, as watching it, that's what I meant more by, like, I know the people who, I feel like the people who love this movie are going to love that about it. And, and it reminds me in the way that, like, I love John Waters films because they do whatever the fuck they want. And I love, uh, I, I love early Greg Araki because I know I'm going to get something I'm not going to see anywhere else. And this mm-hmm. movie is able to do that. Yeah. That said, it, it's just not my cup of tea. But, like, right. I'm glad that it is out there for people who it is. You yeah. know, I, I personally, I just don't connect with, like, as soon as there's that, like, that's just a part of the community, maybe, or something that I'm, I just haven't experienced firsthand. And so it's not really an access point for me. But if that's your community and that's your world, then this would totally speak to you. And interestingly enough that you brought up uh, John Waters, Jose D. Alvarez has mentioned that he considers this like an homage to John Waters. Well, that makes sense, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and there, there's some satire in here that does work. I mean, like, you know, you, when we get the acid enema, which is kind of a very disturbing scene to watch. I also don't know how yeah. the acid didn't like bleed through the douche but you know whatever um but like there's someone walks in and i think they see that they see the corpse of the guy and they just go Ugh, fucking bottom like because we also have a lot of bottom shaming in the community but i felt like that was more of a satirical comment on the people that do bottom shame and so like stuff like that works for me i think that's where the film is the most successful is where it's making these often catty but somewhat pointed remarks and and almost like jibes at the community and yeah, I think just it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. I fear it's not going to be a lot of people's cup of tea when they maybe track this down. I'm excited to hear from our listeners about their thoughts of both of these movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I think maybe just to cap off my thoughts for Killer Unicorn. I'm with you, Sam. It's probably not a film that works for me most of the time. I don't know that I'm like the best audience for it, but I love the fact that we live in a world where something like Killer Unicorn can get made and exist and find an audience now. Like that is so exciting for me because it makes me think about what could be coming down the pike next. Agreed. Do we have anything else to say then? Or do, do you want to do more comparison and contrast? I think we're good. Okay. Unless you guys have something really strong that you want to say. No, I'm good. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't think there's much left to say about Killer Unicorn. But again, I'm going to turn it back to our listeners. I really do want to know what y'all think of these movies. I hope you watch them both. Um, I think that it's a very fascinating discussion of the evolution of where queer horror, and specifically the queer slasher, have gone in the past, you know, well, I guess Killer Unicorn's 2019, so past 15, 14, 15 years. But... We'll just turn that around to you guys, um, and we'll kind of conclude from there. So uh, before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Sam, do you have anything you want to talk about, plug, whatever? Keep an eye out for my upcoming queer horror documentary. It'll be on Shudder. Um, It's the follow-up to Horror Noir. It's from the same producers, and it's uh, coming soon. (laughs) (laughs) Can't say anymore, but we're all looking forward to it. Well, cool. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to that. And uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can visit our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our Horror Queers Facebook group. Tweet us or Instagram us at Horror Queers or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. You can buy Horror Queers merch like t-shirts, stickers, mugs, pillows, and other shit at tpublic.com. That is T-E-E public. And if you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers because... We are doing, amidst coronavirus again, a creature feature theme. Yeah. So, 
we have episodes on arachnophobia, mm-hmm. deep rising, yes, and an audio commentary on one of my favorite creature features, snakes on a plane. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm so I actually haven't seen snakes on a plane in a while. You know, it was really hard. Everyone, y'all know we had a lot of choices for creature features for this, and we went with these. But I think it's going to be really, really, really fucking fun. I think so, too. Yeah. Arachnophobia has got some seriousness. Deep Rising is just a blast. And then Snakes on a Plane is ridiculous. I don't think you remember how humorous Arachnophobia is. But yes, it is the most serious out of the three. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But Joe, Mm -hmm. what are we covering next week? All right. Well, it can't possibly be Pride Month if we're not addressing a little bit of Clive Barker. So, Trace, I am making you watch Lord of Illusions from 1995, and I am so fucking excited to watch this again. Yeah, I can't wait to hear that one. If there's anything I can say that this podcast, like, it's... Show- I mean, I, I would never have known about Nightbreed before this, and I am now going to get to see Lord of Illusions. So you're introducing me to a whole slew of Clive Barker. I mean, basically just expect sweaty topless scott bacula for like two hours (laughs) okay (laughs) and magic and cults it's great i love it i love it too y'all heard it here first uh go see got lord of illusions and if i'm a dummy for not having seen it sooner um don't let me know (laughs) (laughs) uh but on that note i think we can cross out hellbent and killer unicorn yes and cross out horror queers Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy and disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.